0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense i'm john wiener later in the show we'll talk about abortion and its opponents do opponents of abortion really believe abortion providers are baby killers there's some new research about that katha Pollitt will explain but first ukrainian refugees and american policy It's a disgraceful story. David Nassau will review the situation in a minute. It's now more than two months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and more than four million Ukrainians have fled to other countries. Biden announced last week new plans which he said would expedite the arrival of Ukrainian refugees in the United States. But the U.S. plan seems very small. For comment, we turn to David Nassau. He taught history for a long time at the CUNY Grad Center. He's written many award-winning books, most recently, The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We talked about it here. He also writes for The New York Times and The Nation. David Nassau, welcome back. Delighted to be here. Let's review the situation. It's now 5 million Ukrainian refugees. Where are they now? 5 million refugees, meaning they've left
1: Ukraine, there are probably just as many who have left their homes in Ukraine, but have not crossed the border. So they're not officially refugees. So we're talking to 10 to 12 million Ukrainians who are displaced from their homes, from their communities, from their cities and towns. Five million of them, again, have crossed the borders and 3 million of them are now in Poland, more than three quarters of a million in Romania, uh, 426, 450,000 in Moldova, almost 500,000 in Hungary, 350,000 in Slovakia. Now, a lot of them are on their way. This is their first stop because the European Union has expedited transfer movement into every one of the 27 countries in the European Union. and they can cross the borders and they can get help and assistance and remain for 18 months to two years, longer if it's if it's going to be necessary. Uh, so there are a number we we don't have the figures in in Sweden, in the uk, in France, all through
0: Europe. So the EU is doing a lot. And then there's Canada, which can be compared to the United States. What is Canada's policy right now towards Ukrainian refugees?
1: Yeah, Canada almost immediately after the, within weeks after the invasion, um, set up what it called a special accelerated temporary residence pathway. There's no limit to the number of Ukrainians. And they made it very easy for Ukrainians to seek refuge in Canada, and once they get there to get assistance to be able to work and to live, there are no pathways as yet established towards citizenship. But Canada, which has a large Ukrainian population, is welcoming as many refugees as as can get
0: there. that takes us to the United States, took Joe Biden a long time to decide what to do. Uh, First, there was a policy announced at the end of March to admit 100,000 refugees from Ukraine who already had family members in the United States. Under that policy, what instructions were Ukrainians given by the State Department about how to get into this program?
1: Let me preface what is to come by saying that the American response to the Ukrainian crisis in terms of Accepting refugees has been nothing less than disgraceful. It took a month before the Biden administration said, We'll accept 100,000. But then it said, We'll accept 100,000, and this is what you do. Before you can come to the United States, you have to be certified by the United Nations, the UN High Commission for Refugees. You have to be certified as a refugee. So you've got to go to one of the UNHCR offices, get certified as a refugee. Once you've done that, you can begin the process of applying for asylum as a refugee in the United States. The process takes between two
0: and ten years. Wait wait a minute. It takes between two and ten years to get to be declared a refugee eligible to admission for admission to the United States?
1: No, you can be declared a refugee. That only takes six months to a year, depending on backlog. But then it takes another year to eight or nine years once you've got this refugee status from the UN before you can be admitted under the various refugee programs to the United States. If you are a Ukrainian and you want to enter the United States as a refugee, you are told, if you go to the State Department website, that Ukrainians. Should not attempt to apply for visas in order to travel to the United States as refugees, period. Then they're directed to the UN offices. The process is a frightening one. It is Byzantine in the number of steps refugees have to go through. And then there is a limit, a to- limit to the amount of refugees the United States will accept, and it is far below 100,000. For the refugees from every country, including the Ukraine, the National Immigration Forum, which is a think tank and an advocacy group, says that it estimates the process, again, to take between two and 10 years between the Ukrainian before the Ukrainians can get to the United States.
0: We're based here in Los Angeles and it's a lot of news here about a large Ukrainian refugee population that has flown to Tijuana and is getting access to the United States through that San Diego border crossing. How has that been possible given this whole refugee business? Let me again preface this with with two
1: propositions that I know from my own research. One is the United States has never been friendly to any immigrants except those from a couple of Western European nations. Second, we are more friendly to white Europeans who pray to Jesus (laughs) than we are to any other refugees.
0: Nice way of putting it. So the
1: Ukrainians have any number of barriers put before them before they can enter the United States, but many fewer barriers than Africans, Asians, Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Central Americans, Mexicans. Haitians. Haitians. (laughs) I mean, we can can go on. Um, Then everyone who is not white, European, and uh, Christian. So what the Ukrainians have been doing is they have their own network, those with money. They have their own network and they've been trading information. And it became apparent quickly that the easiest way into the United States was through Mexico. You can take a plane from anywhere in Europe to Mexico and enter Mexico without a visa. It's one of the only countries that does not require a visa. So Ukrainians have been flying into Tijuana, some to Mexico City, and then coming to the border. Now, for everyone except the Ukrainians, once you get to the border, you were turned away. Or you are allowed to put one foot in and then deport it back to where you came from. Or you are told, if you want to apply for ref- for um, asylum, wait in Mexico and, you know, we'll let you know in six months, a year, two years, whether you've been accepted. Trump, in this brilliantly malicious, nefarious, I mean, it wasn't his idea, it was Stephen Miller's idea, I believe. They used the COVID crisis to close the border through something called Title 42. They said no one, no one can come into the United States because they risk bringing COVID with them. There is, however, border agents can make exceptions. The Department of Homeland Services issued a letter, a special letter that they sent to all the border control agents. And they said, we're issuing a blanket exemption for all Ukrainians. The border remains closed
0: because of COVID. But if you're a Ukrainian, you're allowed in. And indeed, thousands have managed to get into the United States through that route. They come
1: into the United States and they are allowed to stay until their court appearance comes up, unlike everybody else. And they're allowed to work, but there is absolutely no path to citizenship. As a matter of fact, there is no path to citizenship under any of the Biden plans,
0: including the most recent plan. So this brings us to the plan that Biden announced on April 22nd, which is he's going to close the Mexico route and create a different, new and improved plan. Tell us about that one.
1: The, the new and improved plan is uh, is another disaster. You know, the, the, the proof of whether these plans are viable or not is, is in the details. And if you read very, very carefully, this plan has a fancy name. I don't know, like Uniting for Ukrainians or something like that. Sounds good. OK, but no Ukrainian can apply to come into the United States under this new plan. You've got to have a sponsor apply for you. That sponsor has to be vetted, screened, approved. And once that sponsor is approved, then that sponsor can name a particular Ukrainian individual or a group of individuals. Those Ukrainian individuals, once they've been sponsored, have to go through an elaborate process of further screening, of testing. Not simply COVID testing, but all sorts of other things, including biometric screening. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good to me. Um, so under this new process, it is going to take months, if not years, for Ukrainians to go through, for their sponsors to get certified, then for the individual Ukrainians to be certified. Then they're only led into the United States for a brief, for a two-year period maximum.
0: So my question here is, for the two-year period, they're given something called temporary humanitarian parole. Is that what refugees get? No, this is very
1: complicated. No, the refugee process is a different one. The humanitarian parole was brought into being for the Afghans to bring Afghan refugees into this country. But the emphasis is on temporary temporary there is no path to citizenship these temporary parole expire some 18 months some 2 years you're allowed to work if you get another set of permissions but again this is not like you know my great grandparents when they came here in 1905 you know they came through Ellis Island they came into New York they worked Then they applied for citizenship. And if they spoke a little bit of English, you know, and can answer three questions, they got citizenship. It was assumed that immigration led to citizenship. That is no longer the case, and certainly not with the Ukrainians.
0: Why? Why do you think the Biden administration has been so disgraceful in their treatment of Ukrainian refugees? As you say, these people are not from Haiti or Central America. They're white people from Europe. You would think they might be treated better, given what we know about America, and yet not much better. Why do you think Biden is doing this? I think Biden understands
1: that the process of giving priority, of creating special programs to let the Ukrainians in, highlights the racist nature of American immigration and refugee policy. There can be nothing clearer. All you got to do is go to the border and watch as the Ukrainians are invited in, and the Mexicans are are pushed back, and the Guatemalans are pushed back, and the Africans from the Cameroons who are trying to get in are pushed back. the The process is is disgraceful. If if I can quote from Arika Pinheiro, of Alotro Lado, a nonprofit that provides legal and humanitarian assistance. Quote, the disparate treatment is striking. The Europeans are treated like human beings and the black and brown migrants are screamed at and told to get back, just go away. The more advantages given to the Ukrainians, the greater the disparities will be emphasized. And the more American immigration and refugee policy will be made manifest its racist elements. And I think the Biden administration just doesn't,
0: doesn't want to do that, can't do that. I have one other question. Biden's policy, terrible as it is, has still been criticized by some Republicans and people on the right for being too much. What kind of argument are they making and how much power do they have in this process?
1: Yeah, they they have a lot of power and they have a lot of power, especially through the courts. I mean, when for year after year after year after year, Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society and then the Trump people put in the courts highly partisan and unqualified jurists, these same jurists now are listening to the Republican arguments and the tiniest humanitarian aid or regulation for immigrants is being, you know, turned down, turned away. Biden has not been able to undo much of the frightening legacy of the Trump administration. And when he attempts to do it, um, the Republican senators, Rick Scott and a number of senators wrote very early on, a nasty letter to the Department of Homeland Services, the secretary. And they said, in effect, don't let in the Ukrainians, because if you let in the Ukrainians, it's the first step towards an invasion of our borders. I guess in the last couple of days, there's been a delegation that went to the border. And one of the congressmen said, Ukraine is being invaded by Russia. And we are about to be invaded by refugees. I think the Biden administration realizes as it approaches midterms, a hot button issue. And the Biden administration does not want immigration to become an issue in the midterms, nor do congressmen and senators from a number of states who are scared to death that the election will be run with the main topic of discussion, immigration policy, and opening the
0: borders to these refugees. David Nassau, his new piece for The Nation magazine is called Don't Give Us You're Tired, You're Poor. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, David. Thank you. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain, It's time to talk about abortion and its opponents. Do opponents of abortion really believe that an embryo is the equivalent of a baby? Do they really think abortion providers are baby killers? There's some new research about that. For a report, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in Manhattan. Hi, Katha.
2: Hi, John. It's good to hear your voice.
0: Well, abortion opponents say abortion is murder, but they don't want to punish women who get abortions. Isn't there something wrong with their logic?
2: Well, I think there is. I mean, a woman, according to them, it should be a woman who has an abortion is like a person who hires a hitman. Um, But they say they only want to punish the doctors and maybe the staffers. Um, And I think that's for political reasons. And I'm not even sure they're sincere. But that is what they
0: say. Well, they do have reasons. The reason abortion opponents give for not punishing women who get abortions is that these women are too desperate or too irrational or too ignorant, or else maybe they were misled by a bad boyfriend or bad parents. But couldn't the same thing be said about many people who kill? Maybe all of them?
2: Yes, I think that's a very good point that I made. Uh,
0: (laughs) In your column.
2: Usually, usually the fact that you had a reason doesn't mean you didn't commit the crime of murder.
0: So now we have a scientific study that suggests an answer to the question, do anti-abortion people really believe abortion is murder? What is the answer in brief?
2: Well, according to me, although not according (laughs) to them, this is a paper called Discordant Benevolence, How and Why? People Help Others in the Face of Conflicting Values, which was recently published in Science Advances. And what they say is that they found that regardless of their beliefs, Americans extend support to friends or family members seeking an abortion. Um, and this might surprise you. Large numbers of people who say they are morally opposed to abortion would help someone they know. Uh, not someone they don't know, but you've got to know them first. <laughs> Uh, So choose your friends and family wisely. Um, 76% would offer emotional support. um, And although only 6% would help pay for an abortion, and I was surprised that any would, but over 40% would help with logistics, like giving a woman a ride to the clinic or watching her kids while she goes off.
0: So I have a question about this. Mm -hmm. Only 6% of opponents of abortion would help a friend or family member pay for an abortion, but 40% would give them a ride to the clinic. Why this distinction between giving them money and giving them a ride?
2: Well, I think that uh, for the writers, for the authors, uh, money is highly symbolic. It feels personal. It feels like a real stamp of approval. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, The teenage sister of a friend of mine needed money for an abortion, And a friend of hers said, well, he was Catholic, and so he couldn't give her any. But he gave money to a mutual friend to give to her. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of purified it in some way. Um, And of course, as we all know, money is fungible. If you give it for one purpose, it helps with some other purpose. But that is how they rationalize it to themselves.
0: So it sounds like they're just hypocritical. But I believe the authors of this article thought that there was a a conflict of values here and that that's a better way to understand it.
2: Well, clearly some anti-choicers who help their girlfriends for example get abortions are hypocritical. I mean there are plenty of there are politicians who get in trouble for this rather frequently. Um but what they say is that they sincerely hold two values. And one is that abortion is really wrong and the other is um, you're my friend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so they they reconcile these in various ways. They extend commiseration. They say, well, abortion is wrong, but life is hard and people are imperfect. Or they make an exception. Abortion is wrong, but this is my daughter. Or then there's what uh, the authors called discretion. Abortion is wrong, but this woman is entitled to make her own decision.
0: So that last one actually opens the door to a whole political world of legal abortion.
2: If well, yes, are... you, yes, you would definitely think so. But they don't take it there. They, they just take it to, I'm going to have a cup of coffee with you, and I'm still going to be your friend, and we'll talk about this. But in the end, it's up to you.
0: So this finding that anti-abortion people are willing to help friends and family members get abortions— it's not just an interesting you know, hypothetical finding right now. It's totally relevant right now.
2: Yes, indeed. Because right now in Texas and also in Idaho, just uh, the other day, um, helping someone get an abortion after six weeks can get you in a lot of trouble. The money for the procedure, driving them to the clinic, all the rest of it, lay you open to a civil suit by any random person who finds out and cares to sue. And the the person who sues you can get a lot of money and from you. (laughs) (laughs) Anti-abortion forces thus render criminal this human impulse to help family and friends and which harms the very thing they and we tend to claim to value so highly, which is the bedrock of community. So the funny thing is many of the people who oppose abortion say they would do the very things that the politicians they voted for have criminalized.
0: And if you're in Texas right now and you need an abortion, if you're in East Texas, you pretty much have to go to Louisiana. If you're in North Texas, you pretty much have to go to Oklahoma and you need somebody to drive you. So this is a burning issue right now for lots of young women in Texas.
2: Definitely. And it's only going to get worse because as the states around Texas also pass these laws or others, especially if the courts overturn Roe v. Wade, the court overturns Roe v. Wade, then you'll have to go even farther. And at a certain point, it will just become impossible.
0: Well, I'm calling you today from California, where California is about to allocate lots of money to pay for uh, travel to California for abortion. So it won't be impossible, but it'll be difficult.
2: My question is whether these anti-abortion people really believe what they think they do. I mean, murder is very serious. And if, if your niece said, oh, I've had it with motherhood, I'm going to kill my newborn, <laughs> probably wouldn't offer a helping hand Good
0: point. <laughs> or
2: tell yourself, well, that's her decision to make. Um, so. Maybe a few people would. But for most of us, personal loyalty only goes so far. So I I really question whether the people who say abortion is murder have really thought it through.
0: Well, now for something completely different. Recently, you went on the nation's civil rights history tour. I've always wondered what that was like. What was it like?
2: The nation civil rights tour is really something you shouldn't miss. Um, It was about 20 people. And we were led by um, Andre Robert Lee, who was a filmmaker and a teacher and, you know, deeply, deeply knowledgeable and invested in this whole history. We started out in Jackson. We saw the bus stop where people were, the bus station where the Freedom Riders were arrested. We visited Medgar Evers's house where he was assassinated. We went to Little Rock and saw the high school where... Elizabeth Eckford was in the famous photo, one of the she was one of the nine the Little Rock Nine who integrated that school, where she, there's a famous photo of her being screamed at by a white student as she tries to get to the school. It was a whole nightmare. But anyway, there was Elizabeth Eckford and she talked to us. we we talked to all these wonderful old civil rights people who are so full of life and stories and so. Lively, um, and that was really interesting. And
0: what did what did Elizabeth Eckford say about being the first person to integrate Little Rock High School?
2: Oh well, she she said that worse than the, all the screaming mobs and all the rest, and needing to be protected by you know federal troops, was that for the entire time she was there, no, but none of the students talked to her. She was bullied every day, physically. Pushed into lockers and walls, and you know, uh, as the other as the other black students were, um, and that's the part of the, these stories that I think doesn't really enter into history so much because there isn't a picture that goes with it, and it's sort of like, oh, we solved the problem; they're in school, goodbye. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> on to the next. But but really, these episodes were what shall I say? They they had a lot of repercussions in the lives of the people involved. Um, And they lasted for a long time.
0: And you went to Montgomery, where the 1954 bus boycott sort of launched Martin Luther King as a national figure and nonviolent direct action as the tactic of the civil rights movement.
2: Yes, we did. And we also went to Birmingham, where the four little girls were blown up, were blown up in that church bombing. 1963. Um, 1963. And we met. Some wonderful people who are doing voter registration work now, because the thing that you really realize when you actually go to these places is all these things are still happening. all these you know, it's still a struggle to vote um and it's becoming harder. Um there's still tremendous, tremendous black poverty, which in a way is kind of worse, I felt because a lot of the places that used to be very lively, urban places like Jackson, are now emptied out. They look like sort of a big parking lot. Um, there's just not a lot happening because the people who could afford to leave have left. At least a lot of them have. So anyway, go.
0: The nation's civil rights tour. And one more thing, you have news about a new feminist magazine.
2: Oh yes, this magazine is called Liber. L I B E R, a review, a feminist review of books. Liber stands for means free in Latin and also book. So there's that. And we've published all, we've we've had one issue out, published some wonderful stuff, poems. I'm the poetry editor. I have that's very important. I'm the <laughs> poetry, I'm the poetry editor. Yes. And we've published uh, wonderful poems by Joy Layden. we've published Chris Krause, Laurie Stone, a lot of really interesting writers. Um, the next issue will have poems by Molly Peacock, who is wonderful. Five poems by Molly Peacock. That's not something you see every day. So you need to subscribe, everyone out there. And you can find out more at LibreReview.com, where you can get a subscription.
0: Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is titled, Even Pro-Lifers Helped Loved Ones Who Need an Abortion. Read it at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.